stated in the announcements um, next Sunday when we have our international worker, uh, we will not be recording that due to the location in which he's serving to, to kind of protect him and his wife and, and his team there. So uh, if you're listening online today and, and you're hearing that, uh, make sure you can be here if, if you can. So in the 1980s, there was a new trend that took off in the business world. Now, whether or not this actually was taking place prior to then, I, my research couldn't discover, but definitely in the 80s, this new movement, if you will, kind of took off for businesses. Where the trend was, the businesses started developing vision and mission statements. And if you work, you probably know what those are. But to, to define vision simply uh, in the business world, a vision statement is simply like the destination that we hope to achieve. Right, so in the in the business world, businesses have different vision and mission statements, uh, and the vision would be this is where we hope our company will go. The mission statement of the business is the detail on how we're going to achieve that. Somewhere along the line, this concept of vision and mission made its way into the church, and as leaders were taught the importance of having a vision and mission statement for your church. But I recently read a book by an author named Carl Vaders, V-A-T-E-R-S, called Small Church Essentials. I was introduced to the author from one of my leadership podcasts that I like to listen to. And I heard him talking about the differences between big churches and small churches, and how they have different needs and different ways to run them, if you will, among other things. And I thought to myself as I was listening to him on this podcast, I need to get that book and I should read that. And so I did. And I ended up learning a lot in this book about small church essentials. But one thing that really stood out to me was regarding vision and mission statements in the church, specifically in a small church. I, too often, we put too much emphasis in numeric things, right? Churches are evaluated by metrics, such as how many members do you have? How many new members did you have in this last year? What is your church attendance? How many baptisms? How many conversions? How much money did the church receive in giving? And this is all information that is needed from a denominational standpoint, from upper management and leadership. And what he talks about is those numbers aren't necessarily bad things to take note of because the denominational leaders need those numbers to see trends. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know what the trends have been in the last decade or two for the church. But Carl, the author of this book, argues that while these numbers are important and they should be recorded, 
the local body shouldn't be evaluated by those metrics alone to determine the health of a church. He reveals that there are two categories that reveal the health of a church. And it's, and it's not the vision and mission statement. It's not how clear and how uh, fantastic the vision and mission statement of the church is. But he boils it down to two things that if a church is obedient to, it'll be a healthy church. And those two things are their obedience to both the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Which begged the question for me, what does it look like to become a church that is a Great Commission and a Great Commandment church? What does it look like? And before we answer that, I, I feel like it's important for us to define some things. That when we talk about church, we're not talking about the building of the church. We're talking about the people, the gatherers, the believers, the gathering of disciples of Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about a healthy church, we're not talking about whether the walls are cracked and, and need mudded and, and you know, repaired, if we got lights that are burned out. It's not talking about the health of the building. We're talking about the health of the body of believers, the church is represented by both the individual believer and the corporate gathering of believers. And this is important because this means wherever the believer goes, whether it be work, school, the store, walking around the block, wherever the case may be, wherever the believer goes, they're representing the church as they go. Because they are the church. This morning, we're going to be looking at three primary verses in Scripture, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. So as we begin, we're going to begin in Matthew 28. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there to the Great Commission, verses 18 and 20. And as you have your, your Bibles open, let us uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, pastors are not exempt from the chaos and the distractions. And Lord, I just, I just confess that uh, I kind of feel a little scatterbrained this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would remove those distractions, Lord. Lord, that uh, you would speak this morning through your text. Lord, I pray that all that we do, all that we share this morning, would be straight from you. So Lord, as we have your word open, would you, Lord Jesus, speak to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So at the end of Matthew's gospel, in, in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, we see the Great Commission. It is also often noted that Acts 1-8 is a, is a parallel to the Great Commission as well, and we're going to be reading there as well a little bit later. But here at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we find the resurrected Jesus, before he has ascended to the Father, 
having a conversation with the disciples. And in this conversation, Jesus makes this very bold claim that all authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. And he commissions the disciples. He sends them off with a duty, with a calling. We call this the Great Commission. And after giving this Great Commission to the disciples, he ascends into heaven where he is today. In this Great Commission, Jesus is handing off the duty of building the kingdom of God by his disciples, uh, to his disciples, by the empowering and sending of the Holy Spirit on this very specific calling. So I actually have the Great Commission up here in the ESV. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the Great Commission. And there's so much to unpack here, but there are things that uh, as I was studying and, and wrestling with the message for this morning, as we prepare for our missions conference next week, that I really felt like we really need to focus on. The question comes, what is the Great Commission for us? What does it mean to us? Well, in the Great Commission, we see both a command or a mandate for all disciples of Jesus. And not only do we see a command or a mandate, we also see a process that he lays out for us. We're going to cover both of those. We're going to start with the mandate. The, the mandate for all disciples of Jesus is clear. Make disciples of all nations. Which begs the question, what is a disciple? Well, a disciple is more than just a follower of Jesus. A disciple is more than a believer. A disciple is more than just a learner. A disciple is more than a religious activity attender. A disciple is even more than just a servant. See, in order to understand the Great Commission, we have to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and in order to know that, we have to understand what it meant to be a disciple in the day of Jesus. In Jesus' day, a disciple was more like an apprentice. A disciple would live with the master, the teacher that they were being discipled by. And this is very clear when we read the gospel accounts. When Jesus calls the disciples, he says, come follow me. And they leave everything behind. And now they're walking with Jesus everywhere he goes, into every town he goes, eating every meal with Jesus. Discipleship in the day of Jesus was living with the master, step by step by step. It was an apprenticeship. They would observe everything that the master did. The way he walked, the way he talked, 
the goal of being a disciple was to become just like the master. That's what it means to be a disciple. And this is what Jesus is commissioning his disciples to do when he says, make disciples. Is a disciple a follower? Yes. Is a disciple a believer? Yes. A disciple is all of those things, but not simply those things. See, to become a disciple of Jesus, we must learn from the master in every day of our life. Because our goal is to be just like him. That's what being a disciple of Jesus is. Not just gaining more head knowledge, not just coming to service and checking off your religious activity for the week, not just uh, saying, I have faith and so I'm good. Making disciples is making someone who is an apprentice to look like the master. And that might be a high calling and a, and a high burden for some of us. And, and we might sit here and go, okay, well, how are we supposed to do that? How are we, if that's what we're supposed to be doing, how? Well, Jesus gives us a process of what it looks like to make disciples. The first part of that process is we must go. It says, go therefore and make disciples. This, the, in the original language, this does not translate to English well. This phrase, go therefore and make disciples, in the original language, it's more the understanding that is as you're going, as you're living life, wherever you find yourself in the day, make disciples. In the original language, that's the understanding of go, therefore. It's not simply, well, I was called to Asia to go make disciples. No, 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 no. That might be true. That, that, that might be true for some but the, the original language of go, therefore, and make disciples is as you go, as you go to work, as you go to school, as you get on the bus, as you go to the grocery store, make disciples. It's a way of life. It's a way of living. Which begs the question, if we are to go, if we must go, where? To where the non-believers are. Because if the goal is to make disciples, to become more like Jesus, we got to go find them where they are. And isn't that what Jesus did? But in case you're still not sure, Acts 1.8 explains where those environments are. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And oftentimes we read this and we go, well, we don't live there, so that, this must not apply to me. And I think I've taught on this before here. You've got a little circle on the back of your bulletin. 
right? And it's, it's sectioned into four quadrants here. While this was a very specific geographical locations for the disciples that were receiving this to them, and while that was true, if we zoom out and understand what Jesus is saying here, we all have a Jerusalem, we all have a Judea, a Samaria, and ends of the earth. So what are those? Jerusalem would be, so the circle here is your sphere of influence. The circle represents those who are in your sphere of influence, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, be it what it may. Your Jerusalem are people who are culturally like you and geographically near you. Like you, close to you. That would be your Jerusalem. They are like you, they look like you, they talk like you, they think like you, they behave like you, and they're close to you, geographically speaking. Judea are people who look like you, talk like you, think like you, speak like you. Right? They're, they're culturally like you, but now they're geographically a little bit further away. That's what Judea was. They were Jewish people, but they lived further away. From Jerusalem. Sumerians, or Samaria, our Samaria, are people who are culturally different than us. They have different beliefs. They might not talk the same way we do. They might not think the same way we do. They're culturally different than you. They might have different beliefs than you. In fact, they will. But they live among you. Geographically, they're all around you. And then lastly, the ends of the earth. These are people who are culturally differently, different than you and geographically far from you. Ends of the earth. We live in a day and age where the ends of the earth are coming here. So you don't have to go to the ends of the earth to go and make disciples at the ends of the earth. Although God might call you to do that. And it's important, go ahead and go back to that for me, Jacob. It's important for us to know what these different areas are because we're not called to just do one. We're not called to go make disciples in one of those areas. But as we go, we're going to encounter people who look like us and talk like us, have the same culture, and who are our neighbors and live next to us. In the day of travel, you can drive a day's drive and encounter somebody who is your Judea. Right? This means that wherever we find ourselves, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are to make disciples in these areas of our life in this sphere of influence. That's the first process, is we must go to these areas, this sphere of life. The second part of the process of making disciples is that we must baptize them. 
In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism. I might step on some toes here. Baptism is more than an outward expression of faith. Is it that? Yes. But it is so much more than that. Baptism is an essential part of discipleship because Jesus, our master, who we are trying to disciple and become just like, was also baptized. Baptism is not required for salvation. Thief on the cross, right? We see the thief on the cross where in those dying moments as Jesus was hanging on the cross next the two thieves next to him the one says you know lord forgive me and he says this day you will be in heaven he didn't have time to be baptized so baptism is not necessary for salvation also we find that baptism does not require a certain degree of understanding or a certain length of time in the faith, a certain maturity level. Ethiopian eunuch in Book of Acts, sitting there on the side of the road reading a, a, a scroll from Isaiah. Philip comes along and he's like, do you understand what you're reading? And he goes, no, how can I unless somebody reads it to me? And he reads it and the gospel is presented and his eyes are open and he goes, well, what's preventing me from being baptized? Nothing, let's go do it. And they dunk him in water. Literally, the day he gives his life to Christ is baptized. Baptism does not require a certain degree of understanding or maturity in the faith. Unfortunately, in the church, we've made it such. We've, we've made it go, well, do you really understand the faith that you're proclaiming? Do you really? Back in Jesus' day, in the early church, they're like, repent, believe, and be baptized. Right then, all at once. Baptism is symbolic of dying to our sin and being raised in Christ to new life. We find this in Romans 6, verse 4, where it says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If it means that a disciple is to become like the master, baptism is necessary for that. As a disciple, it is not necessary for salvation, but if the goal of becoming like the master, which is discipleship, if that's the goal, Jesus was baptized, and so we ought to as well. So the first part of the process is that we are to go to our Acts 1-8 environments. And as we go, we're to make disciples. That's step one. Step two as we make those disciples, we're to baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, Jesus says here that we are to teach the disciples to observe all 
that Jesus has commanded us. Where that stuck out here is to observe. This word in the original language means to keep. To not just like observe it from a distance and yeah, I see that and, and I, I can read that and I can learn that, but to keep all that Jesus has commanded. Teaching is not about passing on head knowledge. That's not what teaching is about. That's not what Jesus meant here when he says, teach them to obey or teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's not about giving information from one person to the other for simply a head knowledge. Teaching is about modeling. When we're thinking about making disciples, teaching is about modeling how to live by the commandments of Jesus. Think about the 11 disciples. They were not educated men. Most of them were fishermen, right? They certainly weren't teachers in the sense of what it would require to be a teacher. But they were disciples of the master and were shown by Jesus himself how to walk, how to talk, how to share the gospel, the good news with lost people. I think of in the book of Acts when, when John and Peter are, you know, being, uh, they, they heal a man and the Sanhedrin bring him in, the Pharisees bring him in, they question him. Like, by what a power and what authority do you do this? And, and they, it says, like, they clearly saw they were uneducated. They weren't educated men. They knew how to do their trade. And they followed Jesus. Teaching is not simply the ability to pass on head knowledge. It's about showing and bringing along in the sense of apprenticeship. Do we need to teach what Jesus commanded? Absolutely. But it's the motivation behind it. Why are we teaching in that way? But this would also, this this teaching to observe all that Jesus commanded includes this great commission that he's speaking of right now and the great commandment, among some other things. So we see that in the Great Commission, Jesus gives us a mandate to make disciples of all nations. That's the mandate. As a follower of Christ, as a disciple, we are to go make more disciples. And we're to do that as we go through life. In our Jerusalem, in our Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And as we make disciples, we are to baptize them. And teach them. Teach them not only what Jesus has commanded, but how to make more disciples. Disciple making disciples so that it multiplies, so that there's a movement that begins. Jesus wasn't interested in addition, he was interested in multiplication. If there's that old saying, right? If you if you give 
man a fish, he's satisfied for the day. But if you teach him how to fish, he'll be set for the rest of his life. But what if you teach that man how to fish and teach him the skills how to teach somebody else how to fish? Now you've got multiplication happening. Our goal should not simply be to pass on enough information to make one disciple who then doesn't know how to then replicate it, reproduce it. And this requires so much more out of the disciple than showing up on Sunday, showing up on Tuesday night. It it requires so much more than what we typically give in our relationship with Jesus. Because to become a disciple the way Jesus is talking about here in the Great Commission, it means that everything we do is by his leading, so that we are learning from Jesus, which requires that ongoing daily surrender and relationship to him. If we're truly to become an apprentice, a disciple of Jesus, we have to live that way which means that we have to make choices. We have to surrender things that we're doing in our life in order for that to be true. So becoming a Great Commission church looks like each believer who is the church starting to live out this call every day of their life. But that's just one part of the message this morning. Not only are we to become a great commission church, we're also to be a great commandment church, which is found in Matthew 22, verse 36 and 40. So you have to flip backwards a couple chapters. Jesus is being questioned here. And they say, teacher... Which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In the great commandment, we see that we are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. This word love is that Greek word agape love. It is the highest form of love. It is the love of God for mankind. It is a love that gives everything yet expects nothing in return. It's a love of choice. And we are commanded to love God In this way, with all of our heart, which in the original language means the inner self, our will, right? Our choosing. With all of our soul, this is that eternal peace in us that God has given us, that vital breath, our life. And with our minds, which in the original language is understanding, intellect. So so being a disciple is more than just intellectual, it's, it's three pieces. It's, it's heart. It's the inner being, the will, the, the consciousness. It's our life, the way we live our life. And it's our understanding, our intellect, our, our ability to comprehend. And we're to love God 
with all three of those elements the way he loves us. And then he says the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's the same Greek love word, agape. The same word. story came to mind where Jesus is, is having a conversation, and they're like, well, who is my neighbor? And we have the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Where the Samaritan, uh, there's, a, there's a gentleman that gets beat up on the side of the road, and the priest crosses to the other side of the road and walks past him because of the fear of being unclean by, by helping him out. Another gentleman comes by and passes him on the other side, and then the Samaritan comes by and actually shows him grace and mercy and, and takes him to the, to the inn, Right? And Jesus, at the end, he asks, after, after explaining this parable to the, to the gentleman, he says, who was the one that was neighborly? He said, the one that showed compassion. Go and do likewise, is what he says. The word neighbor here, if you look up the original language, means any person close by. Not the one who lives next to you, like we think of when we think of neighbor, but literally any person who is close by would have been the original language here. So we're to love, we're to, we're to give everything and expect nothing in return to any person who's close by. That's hard to do. That is hard to do, especially in the world that we find ourselves today. And yet, that is the great command, is to sacrificially give everything, yet expect nothing in return to anyone we encounter in those Acts 1-8 environments. As we're going to make disciples, we are to show the love of Christ, the love of God, to anyone that we encounter. This is the great commandment. So church family, this is who we are called to be as, as a church. And again, that's not the building. We're called to observe the great commandment and live out the great commission. Individually and corporately. When the people of God become a great commission and a great commandment church, not only do they become healthy, but the church becomes empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when a church is empowered by the Holy Spirit, kingdom impact happens. Lives are transformed. Marriages are healed. Families are made whole. The entire community around the world are changed. And it doesn't happen because Followers of Jesus are going out into the communities trying to make the community a better place. That's not how it works. It's not by setting up laws that, that help our agendas and, and help us to live the life that Christ wants us to live. It's not about making the world a better place. It's about making disciples who then make the world a better place. Do you see the difference? We're called to make disciples, not policies. We're called to make disciples and baptize them everywhere we go. And through that obedience, 
the world does change. If we're making disciples the way Jesus talks about making disciples. And it starts by each disciple of Jesus living out the Great Commission and the Great Commandment individually and corporately. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, we admit, Lord, that we don't do this well. Oftentimes when we think of the Great Commission, we think about uh, how we're able to send others to fulfill the Great Commission. Lord, we might think of the Great Commandment and we go, well, I love my church family really well, but man, it's really hard to reach my neighbor. Lord, I, I'm convinced that there is no earthly vision and mission statement that we could create that would ever lead to kingdom impact the way obeying the Great Commission and Great Commandment will. Lord, so it's my prayer and my, and my conviction, Lord, that we become your bride, your church, individually and corporately, who take to heart in the very center of our being the Great Commission personally and the Great Commandment personally and corporately. Lord, I, I'll admit I, I don't know what that fully looks like, but you do. Lord, help us. Lord, we repent of our individualism. We repent of our, our bias. We repent of all of the things that get in the way from making disciples and loving God and loving others. Lord, this is your church. You lead it. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for a benediction? Which will be out of First Timothy. This comes out of First Timothy 6, starting in verse 11. I'm going to start in a little bit. It says, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of, Je of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. And the church says, amen, amen.